When the People Decide is a new podcast about everyday people who've used ballot measures to create political change. Learn about grassroots campaigns on voting rights, criminal justice reform, and much more. Find the podcast at thepeopledecide.show or search When the People Decide wherever you're listening now. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the July issue, Hannah Zeeben examines prevailing attitudes about scams and gullibility, specifically the notion that those who get conned are stupid or naive and therefore belong in a separate, crappier category from the rest of us. She recounts the story of Deborah, a woman in her mid-60s who lost her life savings. Someone posing as a Chase Bank employee notified Deborah of some suspicious charges, then asked her for a secure verification code and her new address in order to send Deborah a replacement debit card. Instead, her information was used to authorize an outgoing wire transfer. When Deborah discovered that she had been duped, neither the police nor her bank offered material assistance. Everything about the scam was engineered to be untraceable. And because Deborah had willingly given her information, both law enforcement and Chase said that it was essentially her fault. Deborah's story, she's one of 60 million people who lost money to phone-based scams between 2020 and 2021, exposes problems with our institutions, our financial system, and our attitudes towards victims. I spoke with Zeven about the roots of our fascination with grifters and the fundamental tension between the need for and abuse of trust. Everyone has been scammed. Of course, everyone has been scammed. And also, for some reason right now, everyone loves scammers and just wants to hear about scammers. I know. Um, it's a it's a kind of fascinating phenom. I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to try and figure out around telling this very particular story of Deborah and the history of a certain kind of scam was partially why there's this kind of ongoing fascination right now, but also uh, you know, across the long 20th century. And to think about the ways we're totally excited when the new season of whatever podcast Hulu you know, thing drops, but also kind of repulsed and bored at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you can feel like a sucker for working hard, but then also it's like, it's sort of the gangster problem, right? Where gangsters aren't supposed to do what they do because they're too good at capitalism. And I mean, do you feel like this sort of, you know, you allude to this in your piece where COVID and also the 2008 financial crisis sort of exposed these pretty serious flaws in our financial system, uh, how how society works. And so those two moments, there was this giant uptick in uh, scams during those times. And so do you feel like, this is our chicken and egg thing, but do you feel like uh, people scam when they're they're in a particularly dire state or, or do they scam uh, because they, you know, they see an opening and they know more people are susceptible to it? You know, I think it's it's exactly that kind of multiply determined situation. Um, in doing the research for the essay, I spent a lot of time looking at genres of scam. And in fact, in an early draft, I was just obsessed with giving the reader all of the um, 
sort of terms of art of this scam because the names <laughs> are incredible. And uh, like what? Like what? You know, just they, they all have these very particular, you know, I'd have to pull them up for you, but like the in and in, which is a particular way of moving money. <laughs> you know, I just love. Um, and, and there you go. You hear me getting excited about the scam, right? I am not impervious to the thing I was writing about at all. Um, but at the same time, as there's been like the kind of genre of scam that is very much one to many, but looks like it's one to one, the scammer is checking out who appears vulnerable for whatever reason, whether it's someone who's new to town or someone who's just come into a lot of money and doesn't know what to do about it, or someone who's desperate for human connection, right? This is the kind of his historical scam um, where you uh, are making money move through vulnerability. And in our current moment, you know, on all of the various governmental scam websites, the list and list of current, um, you know, major scams that are being run at a high number in the so-called victim cloud are all mapping to, you know, terrible personal crisis that scales up to the level of society. So whether it's, you know, a classic scam around childcare or a scam around death uh, or a scam around debt, um, there are very particular ones. And then there's the one I wrote about, which is what Deborah experienced, which is when a scammer mimics the institution, mimics the bank. Uh, and scams the bank as well as the customer. But of course, uh, Chase Bank in this case can withstand the loss by passing it to the individual, in this case, Deborah. You mentioned this in the piece, but you know, the Deborah's problem is that she trusted authority. And you're supposed to trust authority, but also not trust what sounds authoritative because it might be a scam. And, and if if you happen to, you know, trust the wrong authority, that's on you. You're the sucker. And I mean, it. this also, this goes, you know, sort of to a larger aspect of American life in which, you know, there's this desire to be with people, uh, to be part of the community, to, to really share things, but then also to be vigilant at all times because somebody might be running a game on you. And and I suppose there are different things throughout American history where you could sort of go back and point to it and be like, well, that's probably where it comes from. But this this it would be interesting to hear you talk about that tension, that social tension. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot in writing about this, about those kinds of social affects uh, and how we think about trust and mistrust, how we think about um, shrewdness and gullibility. And, you know, I think it's exactly as you say, on the one hand, you are supposed to trust the kind of micro interaction with the bank. The bank is who the bank says it is, while knowing the whole time, right, that late stage capitalism is the greatest con ever run. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you one is supposed to be able to navigate that paradox, Um because it isn't just straightforward, right? Why we trust the avatar of big capital, but but not the system itself, say, right? We know we're being scammed to, to hell all the time. Um, you know, late fees, uh, you know, inflation, things like this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with no relief. So, you know, there's this scam you can withstand and there's this scam that sort of marks you off and hives you off as somehow 
um, having gotten that wrong, that sort of timing, dosage, interpretation, and level of of financialized, you know, life, uh, and um, thinking about those moments where there are these, you know, kind of large ruptures, and everyone is vulnerable in a way. Deborah is no more or less vulnerable because of, say, COVID, um, but it was a different set of, you know, lucky um, connections for for that scammer having to do with a move and upheaval, but also someone who's willing to trust the anonymous or sort of pseudo-anonymous voice on the other end of a line, in mm -hmm. this case, Miss Barbara, our scammer. Um, and, and that looks very different than, say, uh, the kind of charismatic, you know, confidence man of Melville, which I also draw on. There is no charisma here. It's, again, slipping in to um, that kind of cloak of, you know, the institution, like, oh, it's my bank. Um, and I saw, you know, a lot of people wrote me after the story, uh, saying that they'd been scammed, telling me how they'd been scammed, um, that they were glad to have someone think about, <laughs> you know, instead of just saying, well, you fell for it, dummy, you know, yeah. uh, why you might fall for it and, and not be a dummy, right? And not even really be quite gullible in the sort of classic American sense as as a kind of you know kid as a child as a child extending into adulthood who just fell for it you know uh, and that was very moving to me as well yeah or that you know you should permanently modify your behavior so that this never happens to you again and so if you know you you get scammed by let's say a roommate that you should never again trust what people say about you know their their personal history, what's going on in their life, their med, you know, what's going on with them psychologically, financially. Like you, you can't exist in society if you completely harden yourself and you don't believe anything anybody says. Like you cannot participate in society. And yet, if you, you know, sort of listen to the harshest advice one gets, and I mean, you talk about sort of Deborah going through this, like, you know, what's what sounds like a completely completely degrading experience with the bank where they're telling her, you know, next time, you know, don't do this. And it's like, well, what is, what are the chances there are going to be a next time? This is, I think this was very interesting to me, you know, um, what a lot of people get as a kind of advice from, you know, the FCC website. If you, you also have to imagine, you know, one of the, the people I interviewed for the story, uh, Lana Schwartz, who's uh, an academic uh, and sort of media studies scholar, brilliant person at the University of Virginia. Lana and I were talking for a long time about, you know, this burden that gets placed on the individual to not fall prey to scamming. But it, it misunderstands people, basic individuals as, you know, doing all of this research to become shrewd, too hard in themselves rather than interacting with the world and only after being scammed, then going for answers. So on the, on the FCC website, for instance, it will say never trust uh, a call that comes to you. Um, so Deborah, right, picked up a call that was ostensibly from Chase Bank saying, you know, have you made these purchases? Oh, you didn't. So we have to do these kind of verification codes. 
which were actually authorizing transfers, huge transfers out of, you know, her account. But the problem is I get text messages all the time from my bank. I won't say which, uh, but it's not Chase, you know, saying, uh, Hannah, did you make purchase one, two or three? And, you know, sometimes it's spam and would result in a scam. And sometimes it's, you know, I just arrived in my new town. And so, yeah, I did make the purchase and no, I've never been here before, you know? And so it's, it's absolutely the bank contacting me and it's, you know, basically impossible to tell unless you know that now because of the era we live in where there is this massive scale and uptick of scamming that you hang up on the bank that called you and call them right back. But in order to get to that place, right, there's a kind of education that needs to happen. And I think most frequently happens when someone's been scammed uh, rather than is something you just know to do, right? Uh, You're supposed to be able to pick up a call from your bank. uh, And that's no longer the case, period. It's also important to note that, let's say, Chase Bank still gets the fees from those transactions. They're not actually losing any money. What Deborah is the person. She is the victim. The bank is still the bank. Oh, God. It cost the bank nothing to have its customers be scammed. If it did cost the bank something, it would be a rounding error for them, right? This is peanuts compared to, you know, what Chase Bank makes in a year. For Deborah, it was everything. And, you know, knowing a great deal about her life story, it was an everything that was incredibly hard won. And uh, the first kind of economic steadiness in a lifetime. And it was gone, I would say overnight, but we know it was gone in a matter of days. Um, and, you know, un- untraceable. And there was no, no one who could care for her or intercede on her behalf, right? It was one of these horrible stories to, to both hear initially, but then watch unfold in the aftermath in which, you know, Family can't help you. Uh, Lawyers can't help you. The bank itself can't help you. The government can't help you. Right. No, no help is is forthcoming. Um, And there are communities of people who do a kind of peer to peer pastoral care. Right. Because it's traumatic and shocking and people feel a lot of shame. Um, But in terms of real kind of paying back into a bank account is not going to happen. And I'll just add one more thing, which is that when I was speaking with Viviana Zelitzer, who's another scholar of money, of the social sort of relationships uh, inherent in money, uh, she's at Princeton. Viviana was saying, you know, even if an older brother had given her the money, even if sort of a lawyer had finally made it work, it wouldn't be her money. Right. You can't undo in terms of a kind of social relationship to the money, the fact that it was the money she earned specifically that was disappeared. And usually we think about money fungibly. Right. A dollar is a dollar is a dollar. But when there's a lot of attachment to a particular you know, narrative around building up one's business in this case, when it's gone, it's actually irreplaceable, even if it's replenished, which in this case, it was not. You cite this parapsychologist, Fechtenauer, uh, Dietli Fechtenauer and David Dunning, who found that uh, people trust others more than they actually claim to. Yes. But I think that that just also shows, right, something that I found so 
upsetting in, in sort of trying to figure out this kind of American gullibility is that there is this really strict hiving off socially, a kind of social pariah status grafted onto people who fall for things. In this case, again, a very particular scam. But people fall for things all the time, and they're made to look the fool. And in fact, actually, we misreport how trusting we are. We are more trusting in general than we think, as you're saying. And um, it means that, in fact, we all have a kind of uh, both a gullible attitude and then we disavow it, right? We kind of split it off. Uh, that's not me. I could never, mm-hmm. right? Until it happens to to oneself or to one's friend or neighbor or cousin or whatever. Um, and I, I was, you know, very keen on trying to figure out a way to communicate this kind of structure because, of course, here it's about scamming. Uh, but it has other kinds of applicability, say, um, in our social and political fields where we sort of hive off those who, quote unquote, fall for something rather than seeing them as a facet of basically the everyday sort of experience of of life now. Yeah. And I mean, I was also, you know, reading this particular line um, or particular finding, I should say, that I was reminded of uh Stanley Milgram's experiments about the electric shocks and and yes. and obedience and that that is you know those experiments were you know forbidden you know they said it was completely unethical even though it was getting at something very deep inside of us so i would be curious to know and and this is sort of an extension of that where there is this trust even though you know if it seems to be an authority figure if it just seems to be someone in need what for whatever reason the, the mark, let's say, trust somebody, they trust and they go along with it. Even if the situation gets more and more ridiculous, they, they continue to trust for whatever reason. Um, is there a lot of sort of psychological research into this phenomenon or is it still kind of, you know, mostly this kind of sociological, sort of these larger sociological trends rather than, you know, sort of seeing what happens between two people or three people or what have you? You know, on the one hand, as you're saying, we have a long, long now history in the sort of human sciences, psychology, etc., of thinking about deference to authority, as you point out, of thinking about um, how people navigate systems that are... Uh, designed to basically scam them, but legal, licit scams, right? Uh, And how they navigate that, uh, the way financialization harms people, right? Lots of different overlapping zones. There is not as much uh, research on gullibility. Um, And I really felt like that was where I wanted to focus um, in terms of telling a story from a different perspective, right? Not the glamorous scammer who succeeds, but then is caught at the last minute. But actually, you know, someone not glamorous, we don't know who Miss Barbara is, and we, we probably never will. Um, maybe someone who works uh, in a phone call center, right, uh, is doing really sort of daily labor, hoping to, to get someone like Deborah, got Deborah, and then Deborah. Um, so something much more quotidian, much less spectacular. That was one thing. Um, 
And also in talking to people who work on the history of the scam or history of spam, like my colleague Finn Brunton, uh, who's really, you know, Finn was saying, yeah, but I, we don't think about the victim, right? Especially from a security standpoint, it's all about how to prevent, but not what happens when prevention has failed. <laughs> uh, and you see that all the way up in terms of policy. So, you know, part of the research for this article was very much following down these threads of, of disparate literatures to try and, to try and figure out sort of how this kind of hiving off has come to be. Right. And you make this, you know, this uh, interesting distinction between, you know, scamming pre-internet and now. And I guess, how would you describe, you've also written a book about telehealth and teletherapy and sort of those technologies. How does distance change the scam? Not just in terms of like, it's easier but, you know, there are, are that, you know, it's, uh, you know, as you were saying before, maybe you expect to get a text from your bank, but it, how, how does it change it in sort of a larger sense? So, I mean, there's so much to say here. I mean, so one is that daily digital life uh, entrains us to be scammed. Um, we are constantly authenticating ourselves. Um, if you have a workplace that does not require you to do two-factor authentication, like Mazel Tov, I do, <laughs> right? I, I all the time am saying, yes, I am who I say I am, and yes, and yes, and yes, all the time on autopilot. I think there's a lot of kind of um, the, the remaining friction of daily digital life is uh, that of that quality that really tells us to just go with the, the prompt, right? Uh, in a way, but you can think about Milgram there too. Mm -hmm. um, but like, yes, I will do, I will prompt, prompt, prompt my way through an entire day of labor in front of my computer. Um, so I think that is part of it, that kind of mechanistic quality. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the distance element, um, I have so much to say. So just to be brief, one is that it allows for scale. Um, so, you know, Miss Barbara scamming Deborah, if she hadn't gotten Deborah, she would have placed however many other calls in that day and has a massive pool, which is, you know, the term of art for is the victim cloud. That's where the title came from. And it just, you know, you will get lucky. <laughs> because you have a really nice size pool to work with. And statistically, it's going to come come down to, you know, with Deborah, for instance, again, it was no flag was raised that the new credit card didn't come because all the time, right, she was missing uh, mail. She had just moved, right? And then there's other kinds of scams, right? Uh, not not totally separate from what happened with Deborah and Miss Barbara, but where rapport is important. And when you're at distance with someone, it's not to say the rapport or the feeling or relationship is unreal, but it is certainly malleable. Um, you can make up a lot about someone at distance. Uh, it's what we're doing right now, right? I don't know what you look like. I don't think you know what I look like, but we're having a conversation and I get to build up a kind of set of minute particulars around what I think is happening and, and you are doing the same. Um, and so going back to that idea of the scam as an index of, you know, current vulnerability, uh, 
you know, if you know where to push, if you know what the bruise is, if you know what you're up to, you can utilize distance to get the person to come along with you, um, you know, in a much greater clip than if you have to, you know, uh, try to get the widow's inheritance, right? <laughs> by going to her house every day for a year. And pitching woo, um, et cetera, yes. <laughs> exactly. And then also, you know, it's that it's that piece of how you find people, which really expedites the scam. Um, you know, I had a, a longer section in the essay, and my editor was phenomenal. Uh, Elena is just incredible. But uh, a longer section at one point, I believe, about, you know, kind of like the obituary scam, where all, you know, the, you can harness public knowledge like obituaries. And, you know, therefore you call up and you say you're someone's life insurance, right? That matching uh, using data is much more ubiquitous and uh, ubiquitously available now. So that that really just speeds up the mechanism. On the other hand, in Melville's moment, something like, you know, a third to two thirds of banknotes were also fake. Right. So it's not to say that we're in a greater moment or a lesser moment. It's just that the means uh, have changed and people's ability to read the situation is changed because scammers both have these scams that have lasted 150 years uh, various kinds of schemes, but they're always updating so that they're ahead of a kind of both social and kind of more security detection, which I found really fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, it seems, again, because there is this lack of interest in victims in the victim cloud, and there are too many people who have been conned to for to, for us to really care you know you know and you do you write quote there the errors mundane and their similarity but facing our boredom is a crucial and a crucial if unpleasant task of you know recognizing these people so do you do you feel like there will be a reckoning of of sorts so that people don't have to learn after the fact how not to be scammed or do you feel like we'll just continue to blame the victim because it's easier. You know, I wish I could say something optimistic, <laughs> um, but generally I'm not optimistic um, about sort of that kind of social change. Um, watching what happened very, you know, up close with Deborah, you know, a lot of conversations for the story you know, it, I think that's a generally a kind of callous attitude that's carried both by institutions like Chase Bank, but also by individuals. Um, you know, the lawyer who spoke to her brother who called it a kind of terminal case, mm. we could extrapolate that out to this kind of wish or fantasy that, well, we could, you know, look at the total financial loss of the, you know, which is huge every year. Mm -hmm. Um I think that that's unlikely. Um, and I think that were it to happen anyway, then there would be a backlash to it, um, as, as we've seen in all kinds of other social <laughs> where We're trying to reconsider yeah. maybe something that's not good. It's actually, yeah. no, no, actually it is good. Shut up. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. But I mean, thinking, you know, thinking of institutions, I don't know. Why maybe this week, these past two weeks, thinking a lot about, I don't know, the Supreme Court uh, and rights. I can't, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, the, about the American project more generally, you know, where, where the land of the free 
And we are guaranteed certain freedoms. But also, or, you know, or they used to be guaranteed. But, like, America's sort of com commitment to religion, and I think you can also see this sort of in the the sheer volume of cults that exist in the United States or things that have been uh, uh, perpetrated in the name of religion. I don't know, Scientology, don't get mad at me. But like this, this. Uh, do you feel like America is particularly fertile ground for the scam because there is this idea of this individualism, this idea of freedoms, and then, you know, if you play your cards right, you can scam somebody and it'll be under the auspices of something like religion and you'll be you'll be fine yeah i think there's so much there i mean my my first instinct is to say if this if the sort of story that has never been true about the united states is one of individual freedom you know is one of progress um then there's going to be the kind of the the truth behind that which is that it has never been free that it has progressed you know, very unevenly for very, you know, in a very controlled way that whenever there seems to be a kind of progress, there you have a kind of backlash and so on, you know, sometimes across decades and sometimes much more quickly than that, that you're, you know, that in a moment such as ours where, and I would immediately go to, to economics here, where there's increased uh, economic vulnerability because there's increased um, massive increase in wealth disparity that people need to get by um, and that they have, you know, people have either, like in Deborah's case, just like a basic trust of people saying who they are um, and being that person. And in this case, a bank, which is super classed, right? That, you know, especially, you know, kind of anxiety around the bank, um, you know, uh, Viviana Zelitzer writes and talks about, you know, people used to dress up to go to the bank, right? Um, because it's such a site of intense authority. And now, of course, it's been casualized as an experience for some, but of course, there are also so many unbanked in the United States as well. And that that creates a kind of vulnerability and susceptibility to, um, to various kinds of scamming, right? Because it's always already attached to vulnerability. Um, and so if you have increased vulnerability, you'll, you will see increased scamification of everything. But the cult thing, I think, is a really interesting parallel because, again, you know, on the one hand, we, I, I, you know, we can say, well, everything is a scam. And you could also very well say basically everything is a cult, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. The cults, uh, the cults uh, that I'm thinking of, of course, can be the kind of more Scientology-esque thing that you're talking about. Or someone earlier today emailed me about uh, other like human potential kind of culty stuff, um, but also can be be ideologies um, that that become cultish. Uh, and we are we are certainly living in a moment where yet again, that is top of mind. Um I'm calling to you from Indiana, right, which is uh, a state that in a few weeks will decide uh, how it wants to proceed in the absence of of Roe after Dobbs. So, I mean, I think that that when I was writing this story, um, it was a slightly different moment, as in the Supreme Court had not just been in session. Yeah, it was so fast. <laughs> so fast. <laughs> so fast. But but um, 
nonetheless, it wasn't any less true in a way, um, just because a certain set of events hadn't crystallized. I mean, these are long projects coming to fruition. Um, and and then sort of cresting to a broader awareness, though many have been obviously aware and agitating and working against these forces for all, as long as they've also existed. I have I've always been kind of fascinated by uh, the how you know again because in the way you're supposed to make money, uh, like good capitalism, quote unquote good capitalism, you know you work nine to five or you work a variety of jobs. And make ends beat that way. Whereas the criminal life or the scamming life, you're operating on this completely different time schedule, this completely different timetable, where certain things may take you so much longer than if you were doing it legally. And then other times it happens so fast that, that again, it's this real shortcut. But yet there's, there's this, I think maybe perhaps what per- sometimes prevents us from seeing these things coming you know, we're being scammed, is that we're not, again, because this is just a completely different way of life, this kind of foreign way of living, this, you know, the way the the grifter is kind of this rarefied figure in a certain sense, they, you don't see that. You just see, okay, well, this person's not working. I'll help them out. Yeah, so I think there's so much here. Um, what I really love the idea of thinking about the duration of scamming where some of the really high profile scams, right. Are necessarily because they're dramatized Mm -hmm. these long arcs, right. I became friends with the person. I fell in love with the person. They took, you know, they're very emotional. And what I was very interested in with Deborah is that it also happened over duration, uh, but it wasn't emotional right? It was service. And then when we think about whoever Miss Barbara actually is, you know, actually, we don't know if Miss Barbara knows that she's scamming, Mm. right? Uh, And sometimes this kind of people who are employed to do the work of scam, the actual labor of the calling, don't actually know that that's what they're doing. Um, And so I think that that too, by going to, and again, right, it, it troubles us as thinkers or readers, or for me, the writer, where it can feel kind of stilted or boring. I'm used to the scam having all of these angles mm-hmm. and, oh my God, is she going to catch me because I'm on a date with my other girlfriend or she found a trace of my real life or that sort of slow dawning realization that something's wrong. Deborah didn't have that. What Deborah had was impatience because it wasn't too hard for Deborah to go to the physical bank. It also wasn't very easy, right? Uh, the bank is far away. The bank is in a very rich area. The bank really is there to serve this very wealthy clientele in, in a very particular part of Northern California. But it also wasn't an insurmountable problem for her. She got over it quite quickly. And she never, until someone at Chase Bank, a real Chase Bank person, told her she'd been scammed, she had no inkling. I remember in the first call we had, she was telling me like about, I, you know, and I include it in the essay, you know, she was having a leisurely lunch, no anxiety, not worried, not eager to get to the bank, right? Not in dread, but not eager. Mm-hmm. And I think that in general, when we think about these kinds of very spectacular scams, we uh, are entrained again to think quite differently of how they go down. Um, and often those are stories that really rely 
on that kind of emotional component that you're talking about, right? Um, I'll help you. The other thing is that Jenny Radcliffe, who is, and I loved speaking with her. It was like one of the highlights of writing the essay. She's a pen tester, which is a penetration tester. Mm. And that whole job is to figure out how people get scammed, how people get infiltrated by basically posing as criminals. And Jenny was telling me that basically there are a few things that are, you know, the classic way in. One is you ask someone to do something really small for you. And then you ask them for something slightly bigger and slightly bigger and slightly bigger until you can can totally get whatever it is that you need. Because again, that kind of entrained to just go along with it. Uh, what's the terrible metaphor? Like the frog in the, bo- in the water that you slowly turn up rather mm. than dropping into the boil. Mm-hmm. And the other thing she said to me is that it's very important that that interaction is based on helping because people like to think of themselves as good people. Right. And so, of course, you you use the example, someone's not working, I need to help them. And then that's, you know, and again, to go back to where we first started, no one wants to then be like, fine, I'm not going to help people. I'm not going to be in relation. I'm not going to think about my means and what I can do here on this earth, especially at this yet again, whether it's, you know, in the long 400 years, a moment of crisis. Um, but on the, at the same time, that's exactly the guise that the scammer will come in. And uh, instead of, you know, punishing people for helping or being trusting, right? To think differently was very important for thinking a politics that allows us to stay socially related, mm-hmm. right? To stay in this world. That felt important to me. And I think, do you feel like there's something, again, unless, you know, in setting aside some sort of larger societal reckoning that will inevitably have some insanely conservative backlash to it, you know, just on an interpersonal level, you know, as a writer, as whoever is listening, uh, you know, of the of of your story, you know, how do we pull off kind of maybe thinking differently about, you know, those who are scammed in a way that contributes to, a, a, you know, sort of a larger change in society? Again, you know, we're we, we, we you know, our, our political economy feels so degraded and tiny right now because it is. But, you know, it's just sort of like on an interpersonal level. Are there things that we could do or just speak differently or approach situations differently that could cha- help change this and not and not make it, you know, not let Deborah be be scammed over? Yeah. So I think that there's there is not yet something that like say you or I can do vis-a-vis the kind of the in and in, right? The kind of really well-practiced set of scams that are on the, I was about to say on the net, like it was 1994. <laughs> That's my problem for being like an internet historian now. Um, but that are on web three. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, not so much there. What I think is good to notice is is just around that kind of when we get bored, you know, um, and that quote from Adam Phillips really means a lot to me, that kind of pre-hesitation, why are we bored? Um, and, you know, I have like a kind of weird set of interests and one of them is very much to do with the psyche 
and psychoanalysis. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of thinking about like, say what it means for an analyst to get bored in a session and what it means in terms of what's coming up actually for the analyst in response to whatever material, but not just the material, like what the feeling tone in the room might be. And I think that we have to pay attention to boredom uh, in these stories, uh, rather than just going for the kind of overplayed spectacular. That's not to say like, so don't watch the next awesome or crappy release <laughs> on whatever streaming service, not at all. I'm talking about real, real people. Yeah. Um, and to kind of reframe away from either that kind of schadenfreude, oh, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. That's so, you know, but also that kind of immediate allergy, that kind of boredom that comes up. Um, and and that was sort of one of the driving things in in writing the piece. It was like, why are people reacting that way, say, to Deborah in her immediate surround? Mm-hmm. Um and what does it mean to be the object that care forgot uh, when basically versions of this happen all the time at huge duration uh, and not exactly how we've imagined it, right? Not just, say, people who've never been on the net, uh, not, say, only socially isolated people, not at all, right? Um, and, and so a kind of depathologization of gullibility felt important to me. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll, my final question, how is, how is Deborah doing? We've been playing phone tag this week since the essay came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I moved to, to Indiana this week. And so I've been in a car with a very large, large dog uh, <sighs> and, and family and all this. Um, what I do know is that for months, so this happened, I can't do math, but you know, in November of last year, October and November of last year, mm-hmm. it unfolded. Um, you know, there's been many different kind of emotional states, uh, resigned, um, hope. Uh, you know, I even held out like this ounce of hope with uh, someone on Twitter tagged me and Chase Bank into a comment. And, you know, I know better. You know, mm-hmm. I know what happens when people at various, if I was like, but maybe, um, so there, there's that kind of optimism that, that is, is, you know, again, in me as well, misplaced. And it wasn't why I wrote the story, but I just got that little glimpse of hope when I saw that comment. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, dogged res, you know, quote unquote resilience, which is this other, you know, horrible American term and something I'd like to explore, um, as well in the, in the subsequent essay, not on the grounds of Deborah, but that there's a kind of return to, well, I'll just do it again, right? I'll rebuild the thing again. And that's what she's doing. Um, and I think that that in one's own personal life, like individual life, is a different way of narrativizing, you know, giving a telos, giving a progression. Well, I'll just do the same again. But there also really was and is no closure on this. And I think that that's also part of what makes uh, it a difficult narrative as opposed to, again, like the spectacular scam where the scammer, you know, ends up in Rikers as in the most, you know, recent one, this, um, the, the sort of fake heiress scammer in New York City, Anna. Um, and uh, I don't think that's what, you know, me politically, it's it, it, the prison is not a what I want at all. No. <laughs> uh, 
So that doesn't, you know, it also doesn't do this repair, right? I thought what Viviana said was very important, which is that none of those kinds of acts, uh, irrespective of my own politics, is going to give the kind of closure that the money being there would. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's intense that that is very much attached to these particular dollars. And so I think it is. Yeah. And also that we live in a society where it's extreme, as you said before, extremely unequal, where people don't have housing, people don't have, you know, a way to retire, that there is so much emphasis on money and hustling and all these other things that, you know, incentivize and have, you know, have incentivized uh, the, you know, the exploitation of others. And certainly the answer to that is not more exploitation through some sort of, you know, incarceration. Exactly. I mean, certainly not. Especially because, again, when we make the kind of most glamorous scammers stand in as what scamming is, um, you know, then that becomes part of the engine. And it's just not representative um, of of not only Deborah's story, but I think the vast majority of people who are scammed. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think that, you know, it's very important to think about these, you know, everyday banal, again, sometimes maybe a little boring um, interactions that are really much more close to everyone's experience of of the scam right well on that hopeful note (laughs) uh thank you so much this was lovely you've been listening to the harper's podcast the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge the new york times called harper's america's most interesting magazine Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.